I want this Christmas Sunday morning to draw your attention to a few verses at the opening of Romans chapter 1. Uh, Not perhaps the text you would have expected on Christmas Sunday morning, but uh, I think it will be easy for me to demonstrate its um, appropriateness. Just the first six verses, this opening paragraph, this opening statement and greeting of uh, the great apostle as he begins his letter, often known as the Acropolis of the New Testament. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel, the good news of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Our Father in heaven, it is uh, this uh, marvelous account of the foundation of our faith as Christians that we want to explore this morning, our God, and particularly want to have written upon our hearts anew, afresh, these extraordinarily great and wonderful things that are said about Jesus Christ. We take too much for granted, and they are the most thrilling things of all things human beings have ever thought or concerning which they have ever spoken. Now, O God, make us to know that and to feel it again. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I selected this text to read for just two verses, verses 3 and 4, so impressive in their simple, artless confession of the Christian doctrine of the Incarnation. In means in, carne means flesh, and T-I-O-N means meant, so the enfleshment the coming to be a man on the part of God the Son. <clears throat> that is, after all, what happened at Christmas and what makes that history so precious and so important to us. The infant who was born to Mary was also, and at the same time, and had been eternally before, God the Son, the maker of heaven and earth, the judge of all men. Paul's confession of the double nature of Jesus Christ, both eternal God and now true man, is even more impressive for its place here in the introduction to the letter. This is so much what Christians believe, so much the bedrock of their faith, that it's not taught anywhere in Romans. It's simply assumed, stated at the outset as part of Paul's greeting. Nothing could be clearer in verse 3 than that when Paul says that Jesus was by birth a descendant of David according to his flesh or according to the human nature, he's assuming that everyone understands that his human nature is not the whole story of Jesus Christ. Human nature is the whole story about you and it's the whole story about me, but it was not about him. You can say of him that he was a descendant of David and that is true. But that's not all you can say about him. You can also call him God, as Paul will do explicitly in Romans chapter 9, verse 5. Or you can say he is the Lord, as he says here in verse 4, which in the New Testament amounts to the same thing as saying that he is God. It's the New Testament way of saying that he is Yahweh or Jehovah, whom we know from the first 39 books of the Bible. This same Jesus Christ, 
born a descendant of David, Paul goes on to say, was that the resurrection declared with power to be the Son of God, or perhaps better, appointed the Son of God. Now, Paul doesn't mean that Jesus became the Son of God or God the Son for the first time at the resurrection, of course. As you remember in the Gospels, Jesus was always in trouble during his ministry because he claimed equality with God. And uh, we certainly know of his assertion that before Abraham was, he was, and so on. Paul means that he entered into his exaltation. As the God-man, he entered into a new phase of his messianic lordship. But all of that depended upon the fact that there is more to Jesus Christ than his human nature. He is also the Lord. He existed as God before he became a man, and now he exists both as God and man. He has two natures in his single person, one divine, one human. Now this is the central doctrine of the Christian faith. It's precisely this reality of incarnation, of God taking to himself a human nature that makes the birth of Jesus Christ, as Alfred Edersheim once wrote, the world's greatest event. Or in a more vivid way, Dorothy Sayers gave expression to the same momentous character of the incarnation bearing upon the Christian faith when she referred to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only thing that has ever really happened. When you understand this, she wrote, you understand all prophecies and all history. We Christians get too easily accustomed to making the most astounding claims and to allow the most remarkable assertions to roll off our tongues as though they were commonplaces. The eternal God, the second person of the triune God, taking to himself a human nature and living forever after as a man, God and man together in a single person. This is more exciting than any adventure you have ever read or seen on the movie screen. This is more perfect than any fairy tale you got to read to you when you were young. Hollywood in, his, in its wildest imagination cannot improve on this. A visit from heaven to earth, God appearing incognito, coming to endure the most horrible trials to win salvation from his people who had been enslaved to the cruelest of masters, the devil and their own sinful natures. We can call the incarnation, the birth of God the Son as a true man, exhilarating, or we can call it devastating, or like many, we can call it a myth or a fairy tale, but if we call it dull or uninteresting, words mean nothing at all. And uh, we must not mistake this. This incarnation is the central fact of the Christian faith. It is its core doctrine, its chief proclamation. Without it, there can be no Christianity. You will sometimes hear people say that the spirit and the teaching of Christianity could live on even if this history had to be abandoned. But the man in the street knows full well that that's rubbish. Christianity is nothing if it is not a proclamation of events that took place in the past, and particularly this event, God the Son coming into the world to be a man. That's easy enough to demonstrate. Not only is the incarnation so clearly taught in the Bible, as here in Romans 1, not only does it lie beneath all the central assertions of our faith about Christ and about salvation, but it explains, it accounts for, and it gives an answer to every one of the great objections that unbelievers have to the Christian faith. The reasons why people today will tell you they cannot be or will not be a Christian. 
Take, for example, the miracles that are reported in the Gospels. Can we who live at the end of the 20th century, can we who inhabit this scientific age of ours, really believe that Jesus walked on water, or that he fed 5,000 people with a few pieces of food, or that he gave sight to a man who had been blind from birth, or that he healed a leper on the spot, or that he rose from the dead or brought others back to life from the dead. Still today, a great many people, people you rub shoulders with every day, find these accounts simply incredible, impossible to believe in a sophisticated scientific age like ours. Of course, these events were also incredible, unbelievable to the people who witnessed them, as the Gospels make clear. But don't you see, all the difficulty in believing the accounts of the miraculous in the gospel simply disappear if you accept the Incarnation. That Jesus Christ was both God and man, that he was utterly unlike in this most profound way any other human being who had ever lived in the world. If the Incarnation is real, the difficulty does not lie with Jesus rising from the dead. That goes without saying. The difficulty is that he died in the first place. That God should have stooped so low for the salvation of his people. Or, in the second, please take the Bible's teaching about man's sinfulness, his guilt before a holy God, God's wrath against sinners and his impending judgment of them for their sins. Probably this is the central objection of most people to the Christian faith. They do not care for what it says about themselves, about their sin and about their guilt. And they do not like the idea of a God of judgment and vengeance. But except the incarnation, this objection disappears. Except that God became a man, underwent a 33-year course of humiliation at the hands of his own creatures, endured their scorn, and finally suffered cruelty and death at their hands for the sins of the world. And it is no longer possible to doubt that sin and guilt are titanic things. If it took God himself coming into the world as a man to suffer and die so cruelly for his people's salvation, if it took this to secure your forgiveness, then man's sin must be a terrible thing. One measures the sickness by the cure. So great, so expensive, so terribly painful and costly a cure leads us back to a very sinister and deadly disease. And if God himself endured his own wrath, for the salvation of his people. Does that not make it impossible to doubt that God must be and is holy and just as surely as he is abounding in love and mercy? Or take the very common objection heard to Christianity nowadays especially that it requires the belief that there is but one road to God and that therefore Christianity alone is true and all the other religions and philosophies of mankind are false. This is so politically incorrect in our pluralist relativist day, so unwelcome, so offensive to modern taste. It strikes so many people as intolerant, arrogant, proudful. You say you have the truth and everybody else is in darkness. Where do you get off? But except the incarnation... And this objection, too, vanishes in an instant. For if the living God actually did come into this world as a man, as a man to save men from their sins, then it goes without saying that this and this only is the way of salvation. If God did this 
for us. If he had to do this for us, no one could continue to think that religions and philosophies that left this fact entirely out of account could possibly direct men and women safely to God in heaven. Very interestingly, this is admitted by the champion of religious and uh, religious relativism and pluralism in our generation, the English religious philosopher John Hick. In his book, The Metaphor of God Incarnate, Hick argues exactly this way. The title of his book says it all, Metaphor of God Incarnate. He's happy to believe in the incarnation as a religious idea, a metaphor of God's nearness to man and care for man, but he'll have nothing to do with the incarnation as an event in history, as something that actually happened. He wants nothing to do with the Christmas history as it is related in the Gospels. We cannot, he says, we cannot believe that God actually became a man in Jesus Christ because if we did that, we would have to accept that Christianity is alone the truth about salvation and peace with God. We would have to accept its exclusive claim. We would have to embrace the implication that all the other religions in the world and all the other philosophies of mankind are wrong. At the root and at the base, they are wrong, they are false. And he says, we can't do that, and we won't believe that. Hick rejects the incarnation not because he has some proof it didn't happen, but because he sees so clearly that to accept it as history would require him to believe things he is committed not to believe. Chief among them, that Christianity alone shows the way to God. Or finally... Take the very practical objection that so many have to our faith, namely that it asks so much of its adherents. It's one thing to have to perform certain religious rites from time to time, even briefly every day. It's one thing to be asked to live according to a not very demanding ethical system. It's one thing to be able to practice one's religion and to keep largely intact one's view of oneself and one's sense of independence. But Christianity asks, no, it demands the surrender of one's pride and of one's independence. It demands absolute subjection of a man or a woman's will to the rule of God. It demands that its followers strive to practice an ethic, a way of life that even the most ardent Christians through the ages have found exhausting and painfully frustrating. It sets standards so high that they cannot be achieved in this world, and yet every Christian, it is demanded of every Christian that he strive to attain them nevertheless, come wind, come weather. And what is demanded is invariably that which Christian, which human beings, even Christian human beings, are by natural instinct least inclined to give. The denial of themselves and the love of their enemies, chief amongst them. Ah, but what if God really did come into the world and become a man for our salvation? What if he really did live incognito among men for 33 years, suffering abject humiliation at the hands of his own creatures, and finally gave himself to death on the cross to pay the price of our sins? What if salvation really did take that much and cost that much? What if God had to stoop so far to save us and to grant us everlasting life. Well then, as C.T. Studd so memorably put it, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then there is no sacrifice too great for me to make for him. Set the bar as high as it can be set. 
The incarnation makes entirely reasonable whatever demands God makes upon his children whom he has saved by the sacrifice of his own son. A real incarnation means that we can no longer fit our Christianity into the rest of our lives. We have to fit the rest of our lives into our Christianity. And that no one is in touch with the center of reality for whom following Jesus Christ and serving him is not the all-consuming passion of his existence. In all of these ways and others like them, the incarnation is the explanation for the Christian faith as well as its core doctrine. This is the gospel. This is the good news that God has become a man for man's salvation because nothing short of God becoming a man for man's salvation, nothing short of man coming in God's place to suffer and to die, or coming in man's place to suffer and to die for sinful men, nothing short of God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering, which is how Paul puts it in Romans 8.3, would suffice would do the job. But if the incarnation of God the Son, this stupendous event which we are celebrating at Christmas, is the bedrock of Christianity, then we must say something else about our Christianity, yours and mine. That it is finally and ultimately and profoundly, really, a matter of faith. It is the Christian faith. I don't mean now that it's a matter of faith as opposed to works. It is that, of course, we're made right with God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, through the gift of His righteousness, which we receive by faith in Him, by trusting ourselves to Him and our salvation to Him. That's clear. But I'm speaking of faith now not as the receiving of a gift, faith as opposed to works, but faith as believing what cannot be seen or demonstrated or proved in a laboratory. For at the center of Christianity is precisely this assertion, this affirmation, that God became a man, that Jesus Christ is both God and man, and that only because he is both God and man could he save us from our sins. Francis Turretin, the great 17th century theologian, put it very beautifully, I think, this way. The work of redemption could not have been performed except by a God-man, associating by incarnation the human nature with the divine by an indissoluble bond. For since to redeem us, two things were most especially required, the acquisition of salvation and the application of the same, the endurance of satisfaction or of death for satisfaction of God's justice and victory over death for the enjoyment of life, our mediator had to be a God-man to accomplish these things, man to suffer, God to overcome, man to receive the punishments we deserved, God to endure and drink it to the dregs. Man to acquire salvation for us by dying, God to apply it to us by overcoming. God alone could not be subject to death, man alone could not conquer it. Man alone could die for men, God alone could vanquish death. That's the significance and the necessity of God becoming a man. But you can't see the Incarnation. It is precisely the nature of this stupendous event that God came clothed as a man. A real man, a true man, a real infant, a real baby. He looked like any other baby. He sounded like any other baby. He did the things that all other babies do.
those things that are motivated by sin. His divine glory was hidden from sight. Even those who were eyewitnesses of the incarnation, who saw Jesus in person, could not see his divine nature. Only on a very few occasions, most notably his transfiguration, was the divine glory of Jesus Christ revealed to men, and then only to three of his disciples. Many of those who came to hear him preach or to be healed by him did not believe that he was God the Son, or that he had existed before Abraham, or that he was equal to the Father in heaven, or that when he went to the cross, he carried the sins of the world with him. And in the ages since, just as in the days of the Lord's presence in the world, many have scorned the very idea of an incarnation. And a great many others have been blithely indifferent to it. And so when Christians have proclaimed the incarnation to the world, when they have said this is the thing that has happened, this is the thing that, that explains human life, this alone is the hope of everlasting life for human beings who are sinners, many have responded to us. If Jesus Christ is really God, let him show himself to be so to the world. Why does he ask us simply to believe something so stupendous, so unlikely, so difficult? Just like those at the crucifixion. If he's the king of kings, let him come down from that cross. 200 years later, Celsus, the pagan critic of Christianity, said the same thing. If he was really so great, he ought in order to display his divinity, Celsus wrote, to have disappeared suddenly from the cross. Then I would have believed that he was both God and man. Now it needs to be said as an aside that everyone else, including Celsus and John Hick, are in exactly the same boat. Everything really important to human life, everything central to human hope, can be known only by faith. We cannot see the future. We cannot even see the past. And especially, we cannot see those things that tell us what human life means, what its significance is, and how we are to attain our hopes and aspirations for goodness and happiness, unless someone who knows these things should tell them to us. Celsus and John Hicks' rejection of the Incarnation was an act of faith on their part, just as it is for us who accept that it happened just as the Bible says it did. Strong Son of God, immortal love, whom we that cannot see thy face, by faith and faith alone embrace, believing where we cannot prove. But John Heck would have to say exactly the same thing about his relativism and his pluralism. And he should ask himself the question why his view of the world produces no great poetry. All along there have been multitudes of others who have not only believed that the child Mary bore was the eternal Son of God, but rejoiced in, their no in that knowledge and built their lives and their hopes upon it. The author of Hebrews tells us that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And that's what Christians are. They are certain that God the Son became a man even though they did not see it at the time and cannot see it now. To be quite honest, Christians are, as a rule, little troubled by the John Hicks of this world. The arguments for the Incarnation, for the Bible's entire presentation of the truth about God, the world, about man and salvation, are simply too convincing, too perfectly in harmony with what we know about our own lives and about the lives of other human beings. 
what we can gather about God. And what is more, the Bible has the ring of truth about it, particularly at those very points where people wish, even where Christians wish, that the Christian faith were other than it is. When truth is most unwelcome and hard to swallow. And of course, still more, we believe in the incarnation with certainty because we have met Christ ourselves, both as God and man. The King of Kings knows how to prove himself in the secret places of a man's heart. In some ways, of course, it takes even more faith for us today to believe in the incarnation of God the Son than it did for his disciples, for at least they saw him work miracles. They observed his life. They recognized that they were in the presence of no ordinary human being or of a man like Paul who actually saw the divine glory and heard God speak, Christ speak from heaven. We have none of this tangible evidence of the incarnation, of the double nature of Jesus Christ that they had. But what is that? What is that to you or to me? When God grants faith to a human heart, it is a power strong enough, a conviction certain enough to withstand not only all the objections of unbelief, but the complete absence of sight and sound. Fact is, there is a New Testament at all because of this stupendous thing that happened. The world has been changed in this dramatic way that it has been changed simply because God came into the world as a man. The incarnation was simply too great a thing not to change the world as it has. Changed even those who refused to believe it Imagine the shepherds. Do you suppose they discussed among themselves that night whether they ought to tell anybody the next morning about what had happened to them? Even if for some reason they had attempted to keep the appearance of the angels to them and their sight of the baby in the manger uh, quiet, they couldn't have done it. Imagine them at breakfast the next morning, trying to act like nothing had happened. Try, imagine them at Sabbath, the synagogue next Sabbath day, hearing some tremendous prophecy of the coming of the Messiah being read and saying nothing whatsoever about what they had heard from the mouth of angels themselves. The incarnation could no more be kept under wraps than Jesus Christ could be ignored when he came among men performing his miracles. This was something that had to change the world, its creator, coming into the world to become its servant. Nothing could ever be the same. We think, you and I, far too infrequently and far too little about the greatest thing that has ever happened, that event that explains everything else, that alone can give meaning and purpose to our lives, a meaning and a purpose that is not bravado, not propaganda, but rests on solid rock, foundation of all our hopes. We Protestant evangelicals perhaps even think less about the incarnation than other Christians do. As Rabbi Duncan of the 19th century Scottish Presbyterians admitted, we make far too little of the incarnation. The fathers, he means the early church fathers, knew much more of the incarnate God. Some of them were oftener at Bethlehem than at Calvary. They had too little of Calvary, but they knew Bethlehem well. They took up the holy babe in their arms. They loved Emmanuel, God with us. We are not too often at the cross, but we are too seldom at the cradle, and we know too little of the Word made flesh. Well, brothers and sisters, here is my point. Not 
this year. Not now. Not for you and me. No matter what the circumstances of your life at this moment, no matter what your trials or sorrows or pains, no matter what your joys or satisfactions may be at this particular moment of your life and this time of year, the incarnation of God the Son throws all of those things into the shadow, makes all of them comparatively nothing. God entered this world as a man. And if you know that and believe that, and if you are ordering your life in keeping with that fact, to be true to that fact, then you are living in touch with the very center of reality, of the reality that lasts forever and ever and will carry you with it into the next world. All that matters most and matters forever is yours if you understand and if you embrace the only thing that has ever really happened. Or as John put it in his first letter, he who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's as simple as that. And if you're sitting here this morning and do not have the Son of God or are unsure that you have the Son of God, remember something he said when he was with us. He who comes to me, I will never drive away. Amen.